One more week till the beginning of Vasa. It's <coughs> a so time to reflect on the impermanence of life. It's because we measure our time in the robes by Vasas. So another Vasa arrives for us. be a time we recollect Lumpur Cha, our teacher, our good fortune to have come into the robes as a disciple of Ajahn Chah in his Sangha. The opportunity to practice the teachings that he left us. <coughs> Following the Vinaya and the training and the practice of mindfulness meditation. Jen Chao always reminded us to develop that sense of contentment with our situation, wherever we are. Developing fewness of wishes and contentment with the requisites and the monastery or the place that we're practicing, contentment with our own set of five candors, so that we can continue to practice at ease. So this applies whether we're here or we go off to other monasteries or we're on Tudong. Wherever we go, we're disciples of Ajahn Chah and we have a way of practice that we can keep returning to as a reflection, a contemplation, and a way of inspiring our efforts in the practice. There's a certain flavour to Ajahn Chah's style of both his, the way he taught and also the way he encouraged us to practice. So his monasteries tend to have times where we have group meetings for chores, for the meal, for meditation and chanting, but also time for solitary practice and when in group meetings 
Ajahn Chah is reminding us to practice mindfulness, not to get lost in too much unnecessary chatter and unnecessary activities. Because living as a group is very easily, very easy to fall into suffering and confusion, views and opinions that we hold, that other people hold, we have. The more we interact without mindfulness, then the more confusing life in the monastery can become. So the center of our practice is always mindfulness. Mindful of the Vinaya, mindful of our meditation object, mindful of the Dhamma, and each dukkha anatta of our experience. So we learn this style of practice so that we're, whether we're here in a group situation or on our own at our kuti, or we're traveling or in another monastery, we can take that practice with us and it's a foundation for us to continue wherever we are whatever the situation. Because of our ordination lineage and the way we wear our robes and so on, we eat in our bowls. This is, we are recognized as disciples of Ajahn Chah in this way. But this can be a great strength to us. Wherever we go, we have a way of practice that we're familiar with and we can take it with us. If we <coughs> listen to his teachings or read them, always ref reminding us to come back to Mindfulness, the one who knows, developing that quality in all postures, just as the Buddha taught, foundations of mindfulness, beginning with the body, beginning with mindfulness of our posture, as we move around, do things, whether we're sitting still in meditation, walking meditation or doing other activities to be drawing the mind back to the present moment paying attention to the present moment what's manifesting in our experience our feelings, our thoughts what our body is doing our actions our speech learning how to bring up mindfulness in different situations to guard over our mind bring up a sense of composure with that we get the stillness, the quality of stillness and quietness <coughs> so that we can contemplate and as we practice we always have doubts about our own abilities and how much we 
can practice what we have to do. If we have doubts about meditation, how much samadhi we need, and so on. These kind of questions always come up. Ajahn Chah always reminded us just to bring up mindfulness and try and sustain that. He said if you're mindful then you can contemplate. You just need that much samadhi or that much mindfulness that you can contemplate. Because it's the development of wisdom that leads us to realize Four Noble Truths and free ourselves from the causes of suffering. We've all got already, we've all developed some mindfulness, some samadhi. What we have to do is keep using it, bringing it up and using those same qualities regularly so that we can keep contemplating Dhamma through our experience. Some people think that samadhi is maybe a bad thing even, worry that they're going to attach to samadhi. That when the Buddha or the teachers talk about attachment to samadhi, they're talking about somebody who could maybe sustain a blissful, still, quiet state of mind all day, all night regularly, all the time, suppressing their hindrances and the defilements. They're able to attain that level of samadhi and then they don't contemplate. But a more modest level of samadhi is nothing to be critical of or afraid of or against more modest level of samadhi where we calm the mind so that we can know it and see it better. We can all achieve that. And that can be the foundation for contemplation. Developing insight into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. We can all understand those concepts intellectually can think about them, read them, hear about them. It's about, but the practice is about turning to pay attention to observe them and know those qualities, those characteristics in our experience in daily life. You read Ajahn Chah's talks and over and over again, encouraging us to do that, to come back and notice our own state of mind as impermanent uncertain, establishing the quality of knowing that allows us to watch with a detached state of mind so that we get a separation between mind and its object. So you might talk about the simile of the mind like being like in its natural state, being like clear, pure water but due to ignorance, craving, attachment, lack of mindfulness, different colored liquids come to mix with the water and color it, yellow, blue, green, and so on. Just like the objects that we 
contact with our six senses sight, sounds, taste, smell, touch memories and ideas every object colors the mind if we don't meet it with mindfulness and it's our habit we tend to be attracted towards pleasant objects so we're always looking and hoping and wanting pleasant experiences pleasant sights pleasant sounds often to do with people so we want to see people that attract us and make us feel good and happy our friends or people we find sensually attractive sounds say we like to hear words that are words of praise words that are interesting exciting interesting alluring and so on and we don't like to hear words that are unpleasant or disagreeable to us we like pleasant contact with our skin so we like air temperature to be just how we like just warm enough not too cold not too hot But as we know, as we contemplate, it's all uncertain. Sense contact is uncertain because the world is an uncertain, uncontrollable place. You can't control other people. The things we see, the things we hear, the weather and so on. We can't manage it or control it very well. So we use mindfulness and the knowing to deal with the experiences of pleasure and pain and the mind that attaches to them so that we can separate out the mind from its objects this conditioning process where the mind gets colored by the different liquids that come into the pure water of the mind and when we establish mindfulness and you separate the mind from its experience of an object it's like the mind returning to that clear water and the dye, the coloredness of the object is exposed and it's seen as separate, something different but when we don't establish mindfulness enough or clearly enough then of course the mind mixes with the color of the water the pure water is gone and it becomes colored the mind it mixes with its object and its reactions to the object and gets caught into more craving and attachment more confusion, more suffering so over and over again our daily practice is this bringing up enough awareness to know what's going on in our experience but not attaching not clinging letting go so vasa time is a good, good time to a good chunk of time in our life to just dedicate ourselves to bringing up more mindfulness and then contemplating and each dukkha anatta of our experience if we're not mindful enough to contemplate then keep redoubling our efforts to bring up more mindfulness more awareness Ajahn Chah often 
talked about at the beginning of fast is a time to put away the books. If we do read, then read enough just to stimulate and encourage you in more practice. He's pointing to the limitations of knowledge, book knowledge, sanya, memory. It's not that he's against books, but to point out the limitation of memory and the knowledge that we might have intellectually developed around the Dhamma practice. It's our conditioning as human beings in our society. We identify strongly with knowledge, what we know, who we know. A lot of our self-view is based around that, um, being somebody who knows a lot, knows things that other people don't know. Or we judge ourselves as being one who knows a lot or knows a little compared with others. Our experiences, who we know, where we've been, what we've done in our life. We identify with this, but it's all very superficial when we talk about the heart. The heart that's trained with the knowing, the mindfulness, the one who knows. It may know a lot or it may know a little, but it can be mindful. So intellectual knowledge in itself is not yet a cause for enlightenment. It has to be channeled into the practice of mindfulness and in contemplation of the three characteristics. Otherwise it can just be a cause of more suffering. We identify with what we know. Another self-view to be let go of or else another self-view to cause us endless confusion and unhappiness. Ajahn Chah used to talk about one monk who's a maha, so he's a very well, uh, well-studied scholar monk, came to live with him, who had that sense of knowing that all his book knowledge, which he had a great amount of, and he was well known as a very rounded scholar, great knowledge of the suttas and the Abhidhamma. We had that sense that this was still not the real path to enlightenment yet. Out of curiosity and out of interest, he came to stay with Ajahn Chah to learn meditation. But he was somebody with very, very proud, as he said himself, very proud, proudly attached to his book knowledge of the scriptures and the techniques and the theory. But this made him very proud and very fierce. He was always putting other people down who didn't know as much as him. and a lot of anger, which he recognized, but still hadn't managed to let go of. So when he first came to Wapapong, it was all turned, all of this energy, the conceit and the anger was turned towards Lumpur Chah. 
as soon as he came under the Vinaya, the Vinaya in the Wapapong was much stricter than in his, the monastery where he'd been studying. Started to blame Ajahn Chah. Then he started to doubt whether Ajahn Chah really knew what he was talking about because he didn't quote the suttas so much. Didn't seem to have such great theoretical knowledge of the scriptures. He wasn't a maha, hadn't done so many exams. So his first few days in the monastery is always thinking of Ajahn Chah complaining in his mind, does Ajahn Chah really know? Why is he making his practice in this way? Is he really enlightened? Does he really have samadhi? Over and over again, thinking, what's Ajahn Chah's mind really like? And then one day he thought he'd come out and listen to Ajahn Chah talk at his kuti when he was talking to some other monks and lay people. He sat down so Ajahn Chah just asked him very directly, so do you know me yet? And the monk knew immediately oh, Ajahn Chah's talking in a way like he knows what I've been thinking. Ajahn Chah said, do you know me yet? Have you seen very deeply inside of me yet? Have you seen my skeleton yet? Have you seen my heart, my liver, my kidneys yet? just talked in that way, the monk had to quietly listen. He knew Ajahn Chah was just answering his doubts where he said, I don't really know Ajahn Chah, I doubt about Ajahn Chah, what's Ajahn Chah really like? So he's just answering the question without the question having been formally asked. The monk realized, oh he knows what I've been thinking. Ajahn Chah said, do you know me? Do you know what my body is like? Have you seen inside my body? Is that the real me? So the monk was a little bit humbled and went back to his kuti, realizing Ajahn Chah maybe had quite a lot of psychic ability and samadhi. He really knows what other people are thinking. Still, a lot of complaints coming up, a lot of negativity just because he's getting used to the way of practice. Then later another day a layman came to visit Ajahn Chah. He came through the forest and in those days there was no wall around the forest so lay people would come from different villages and approach from different directions and just walk through the small pathways through the forest. So he walked past the kuti of this Mahan and came on to Ajahn Chah's kuti. Sat down and talked to Ajahn Chah about Dhamma. During the conversation Ajahn Chah said, which village did you come from? And he told him, he said, oh you came in that direction, did you came from that pathway? He said, yeah. He said, oh did you see my pet tiger that I keep over there? And the man was very surprised to hear this. He said, no, I didn't see any pet tiger. He's really fascinated that Ajahn Chah has a pet tiger. He said, where's your pet tiger? Ajahn Chah said, oh, he's over there. He's at that kuti, around that kuti over there. So when the man left to walk back the same way, he couldn't help 
would be curious, wanted to see this pet tiger, so he started walking around the area of that kuti where the Maha, the monk, lived. Looking around, where would it be? Sajjan Chow didn't say exactly where it was, he just said it's over there. And the monk saw him walking around and wondered what this man is looking for. He could tell he's looking for something in the forest outside. So he came down, he asked him, oh, what are you doing? What are you looking for? Ajahn Chah said, oh, he's keeping a tiger over here. I was looking, where, where would the tiger be? And the monk knew immediately, there's no tiger around there. Ajahn Chah was referring to him. He didn't let on to the, the layman. He went off, went back home. Again, his heart sank. He said, oh, no, Ajahn Chah is comparing me to a tiger. And he realized in his mind, still had such strong personality and attachment to his knowledge. His ego was very, very strong. It's like a tiger in terms of Dhamma. Mindfulness and wisdom developed. And he could tell Ajahn Chah was just kind of indirectly pointing him out. He has to tame the tiger inside of him. And this is the way that monastic training works for all of us when we come in. We all have our ego, our personality, our sense of self, our attachment. So out in the world we tend to follow desire and attachment rather than contemplate it as suffering. So whatever agrees with us, we tend to say this is right and good for me and we build up a view, this is, this is the way I like things and want things. Whatever doesn't do, doesn't agree with us, we tend to say, well, that's wrong, that's bad, that doesn't agree with me, I don't want that. And that becomes our attachments and personality in different ways, depending on our karma. So we come into the monastery and that's the, what's affecting us, our likes, our dislikes, our attachments. But then in the monastery we're following the way of practice Ajahn Chah gave us. So we have the robes, we didn't design them the way the Buddha designed with Ananda. We have a kuti that we didn't build or we don't own. We don't cook our own food, we accept the food that's left over from the laity, we bring it and kindly share it with us. Medicines, we just use whatever is made available to us. So we all follow the same rules, the same practices, and we're learning to deal with this tiger inside of us that represents the ego or the self. The only way to really deal with it is through the development of mindfulness and then contemplation. Bringing up more clarity so we can separate between that quality that knows that it's like the pure clear water, unadulterated, not coloured, not affected by the world, and then our own worldly reactions based on our conditioning, our craving and our attachment. Having enough awareness to see craving and attachment arise, see how it causes us suffering, 
and have the presence of mind to start letting it go, not following every desire, but just watching and allowing it to fade away. So Ajahn Chah always reminding us to have patience, <coughs> endurance with our own moods. Sometimes with external conditions, because we live in a simple way in the forest, but more importantly with our own moods and desires. It's where we have to be most patient. Because it takes time to keep bringing up mindfulness, keep contemplating, keep letting go. We have to be willing to give the whole practice time. To be mindful of this body, feelings, the mind itself, mindful of Dhamma, the process by which Kilesa gives rise to the hindrances to suffering. Be mindful of the Four Noble Truths. Be mindful of Dhamma giving rise to liberation. The four foundations of mindfulness are what we're practicing, but we need the patience to keep applying the practice, applying our mind to the practice. The way of the world is always results orientated, so that's why we start off, we read a lot, and we compare the books, and we think we know, but that's still just intellectual, theoretical knowledge. The hard part is applying it in daily life, where we have to be much more humble, more accepting that this is the way it is. We have attachment to our five candors, this sense of self, and it's not always getting what it wants, so we have difficulties, we have reactions to things, we get high and happy with one thing and then we get down and low with another. But these are all just conditions of the world that we can be mindful of. So we practice meditation, sitting and walking every day, morning, middle of the day, evening, calming the mind down enough, sustaining the mindfulness so we can contemplate. Sometimes we do it as a group, sometimes we do it on our own at our kuti. But the aim is always to bring the mind to the point where it can see and know Dhamma rather than just following moods and getting caught up into the conventions and the ways of the world all the time. Now this is a chance to do that, a very good opportunity, three months. In a quiet forest without too much disturbance from the world around us, we can just quietly get on with that practice do something very valuable that will stay with us for the rest of our life and even many lifetimes all the way to Nibbana. We've almost certainly been doing it in the, in the past. It's led us to this point where we're doing it now. But we all still have more to do, more practice to do, more to contemplate, more to let go of. So we... I'll encourage you all just to contemplate that, always reflect on Lumpo Cha, what he taught, the way of practice. Wherever you are, that should bring you some strength and some direction in what you have to do. So I'll leave you with these words to contemplate tonight.